0: So last week we began our quest through the Old Testament. We're going to be skipping around, moving for the most part chronologically or textually through, you know, linearly. But then there'll be moments in which we jump back and forth during Advent and during Lent. But for the next several months, we will be considering this theme of Christ in the Old Testament. Now, last week we began at the beginning. In the beginning... God creates a world in which there is darkness, and we had to wrestle with that. Maybe you've wrestled over the course of the week. I assure you, you'll wrestle the rest of your life with that very concept of God creating a world in which there is darkness ordained and allowed. But what we do know also is not only that God allows and ordains there to be darkness on the face of the deep, and of course it's a metaphor for something much deeper and darker, which we run into in this text, but our God is a God who says, let there be light and our God is a God who casts out darkness. And so even in the sun and the moon and the stars, in the midst of the darkness of night, God establishes the moon to govern it and to remind us that the sun is still there and that the sun is on its way back home, back around. And we will see it again. And we wrestled with that last week. Today, we come to Genesis chapter 3. Of course, skipping over much in Genesis 2. Genesis 2 is well worthy of study. But we're, we're just looking at particular moments if you will, in some ways, like the Mount Rushmore of texts that are, are Christ in the Old Testament. And it's almost like you, we need to think, the metaphor I've been using with my students in, in class, we talked about this a little bit in, uh, in church history, because before we jumped out into church history, we went back to make sure we had the context of church history, and we did a quick jaunt through the, uh, through the Old Testament, I me and did it in, in, a, in a few days. But the metaphor we used was like there being a treasure in the room, and we're gathered around, the, or in an arena, imagine, and we're all sort of on the periphery. And there's this amazing treasure hidden, or not hidden, but sort of placed in the center, but the lights are out. Right? The lights are out. Darkness has is, uh, overwhelmed the, the, the Colosseum or the arena. And, but then the lights come on, but they come on gradually, very, very slowly. And as the lights are coming on, we begin to make out a little bit more of the treasure that is there for us to behold. And if you think of the Old Testament that way, that the Old Testament is a gradual, this is not the only way to think of the Old Testament, but a helpful one, I think, in this case, for what we're studying, that the Old Testament is a gradual turning on of the lights. So that over time, we are seeing more and more detail of the coming treasure, of the treasure that we are all going to get to behold and to enjoy. In Genesis 3, if you will, the lights go, the lights go out, <laughs> and yet the lights come on. Right? We, get, we get the utter darkness, a darkness which the darkness of Genesis 1 just was a metaphor of. Right? Genesis 1 sets the context so that when we experience this darkness, we know that ours is a God who will say, let there be light. But as we approach Genesis 3 now, we know the lights go out with a deeper darkness than the cosmic darkness of Genesis 1 because this is the darkness of sin. And yet, yet, as the lights go out and we wonder if all hope is lost, God says, let there be light. And in Genesis 3.15, the lights come on. But it's very dim indeed. And you can see the treasure. You know there's something there that we're to behold. But wow, I'm having a really hard time making it out. (laughs) You know, It's a seed of a woman and a seed of a serpent, and there's a stepping on the head, and there's a biting of the heel, and I don't know what to do with that. The lights are on, but they're dim. But now, from this point on, through the rest of the Old Testament, the lights will grow brighter and brighter and brighter until finally... John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. It is as if in that moment, we get the full revelation. It's as if, there it is. It doesn't get any brighter than that. Here is the treasure that to this point we have been doing our best to make out in the dimness of the light. Yes, the light has gotten brighter, but it was still pretty dim until finally we see Christ and it's like, aha, there it is. The light of the world. So, Again, a familiar text, Genesis chapter 3. But think about, let's let that in some sense be the metaphor, the guiding metaphor for the next months of sermons that we're watching the light get brighter and learning more and more. Every promise here is giving us a different facet of the treasure that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So that when he comes, we go, ah, yes, yes. I I see what you're doing here. I get you. I understand. I was prepared for this. I was prepared because of all of these images that were given to us and all these storylines and all these themes, you've established the habits and the way of thinking and the expectations so that when John says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, we're like, I'm with you. Okay, I'm tracking. But we know how difficult this is. Because when this happened, they did not recognize him. They disowned him. They crucified him. So, so it tells us, you know, in, in the text we looked at last week, Jesus says, "To you search the scriptures thinking you'll gain wisdom, but I'm telling you, you lack knowledge. You do not know the God of this Bible. And they're offended by this. They have these scriptures memorized. They know this. He said, well, I don't testify you against you. Moses testifies against you. You don't believe Moses. Because if you believe Moses, you believe me because Moses wrote about me. It's a very powerful verse for understanding the Old Testament. That when we're reading Genesis 3, we're reading about Jesus. Even though we're reading about Adam and even though we're reading about a seed of a woman and we're reading about this and that. And When we read the next story, we'll be reading about Jesus because Moses is writing about Jesus. But even Moses doesn't know that. Moses is telling the story under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the truth as he understands it, and the Lord is superintending it to be laying the groundwork and the tracks for us to understand Jesus, the Lamb of God that takes away sin of the world so let's think about three things in this text again this chapter probably requires three four five ten sermons i don't know a year of sermons we could preach on on this so we will do we will do great injustice to this text by trying to tackle the whole thing in one sermon but so it is let's think about three things first the problem Second the promise and third the pledge. So we'll stick, we'll do the we'll do the good pastor thing and stick with three P's today and make, you know, I was at Presbytery, so I feel like I have to I've kind of I've kind of had my act shaped up and I gotta do the pastor thing and do three P's. So that's what we'll do. The problem. The problem, of course, is the fall of mankind. Adam, the representative of all mankind, is given this responsibility in Genesis one and in Genesis two. He is the representative of mankind. And Paul will elaborate on this in Romans chapter 5, if you'd like to go read it. Romans chapter 5, 12 through 21 is where Paul elaborates on this relationship that Adam has to us and that Adam has to Christ. He is, if you will, the first Christ figure. He's the representative of mankind. He's He's a real human figure, just like Jesus was a real human figure, but he has a representative role. Legally, he's a representative man. His name is Adam, after all, means man in Hebrew. Right He's called man, he is he is the representative of humanity, as goes Adam, so goes all of his posterity. So goes all of humanity. and Adam is given a task, right He's called to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, rule the earth, subdue the earth. We read, we read about that a little bit last week, and he's given Eve as a helpmate, right taken from his own flesh, right the bride taken from the flesh of the of the groom. Think about this, very christlike right, right? He, he's she, he's put to death he's put to sleep and from his side is uh, eve is formed uh, uh she you know bone of my bone flesh of my flesh a very christ-like image it's, it's 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 by the death of jesus as he's put to sleep if you will that the church is brought forth from his own body um so there's that going on in genesis 2 some really beautiful christ imagery there um And so he has his helpmate now, and and together they're going to fill the earth, rule the earth, subdue the earth, and do all the things God said. But he does give them this prohibition too. He says, look, I've given you the garden. Go ahead, let's work just in the garden. We'll deal with subduing the earth later, but we're going to start in the garden. Let's work here. And everything here you may eat, except for this one tree. This one tree. Everything else I'm giving you, it's all yours. Enjoy. Go for it. But this one tree of this tree you may not eat. I love how Doug Wilson calls it. He says, a garden of yes and a tree of no. Right? We often think of God the other way around. We think of God as a God of no, you know, like a garden of no and a tree of yes. It's not the, not the case. Our God is a God of abundant delights. It's all yours except for that one tree. But Satan flips this, right? Satan immediately comes back and says, did God say you can't eat of any of these? He presents God as a God of no. But our God, the God of Adam, is a God of yes, with a tree of no, right, there are, there aren't, there's no. Certain things are off limits and not good for you. Now this tree, of course, is not a magic tree, right? We, we, get, we take this from our fairy tales, the fairy tales, so many of the fairy tales, believe it or not, tap into this story, right? We've got serpents and dragons and magic fruit, and right? We, we've heard this story before, they're, they're tied into this, this is a fundamental, story, I think, for all humanity. But the tree is not magic. It's not a magic uh, uh, fruit. But the Lord chooses that tree in the center of the garden. And he makes this tree represent something. This tree represents the knowledge of good and evil. The tree represents the knowledge of good and evil. And he says, you may not eat of it. Now it's a very odd thing to say. To say, I don't want you to have the knowledge of good and evil. If the tree represents the knowledge of good and evil, you think he'd say, look, I want you to eat of that tree. I want you to pound the fruit of that tree. I want you to have the knowledge of good and evil deep within you. But he says, this tree represents the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat that. It's an odd thing, right? Again, we've heard this story over and over again, but that's an odd thing to say. It doesn't compute initially, like why wouldn't you want them to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? It seems like you'd want them to have that knowledge. And we might also ask, I often ask my students this, so if they were not called to eat of that tree, could they then have the knowledge of good and evil? If that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and God's saying don't eat of it, then could they really have the knowledge of good and evil? Did they have it? They're called not to eat of it. And then when the serpent comes in and tempts them, were they to know that the temptation was evil if they hadn't been able to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? I mean, the whole thing seems a little confounded here. And the answer is, of course, we don't have time to sit in a Socratic discussion, so I can't have this with you. I wish we could right now, and we did a little bit in Sunday school a couple of years ago. But, of course, they were to have the knowledge of good and evil. They could have the knowledge of evil, good and evil, and they did have it. But how did they have it if they couldn't eat of the tree? And the answer is, by listening to their God. That the way they were to have the knowledge of good and evil was not independent from God, but to be by listening to God, that instead of relying on themselves for the knowledge of good and evil, which the tree represents, you have it for yourself, and there would be time for that, but not yet. Now is the time of listening, of looking, of understanding that Adam, you are the king of all creation. I've put you over everything, but that's a dangerous position to have. So I'm gonna let this tree represent the knowledge of good and evil. You may not eat of it. Therefore, to know good and evil, you must come to me. Look to me I will tell you. I will give you the knowledge of good and evil and in fact I've had I have don't eat of that tree. Subdue the earth that's good eating of the tree bad. But you look to me for the knowledge of good and evil. Well of course when Satan comes and tempts them right the temptation is not to fruit. <laughs> they had plenty of fruit. The temptation was to autonomy. The temptation was God knows the day you eat, you will be like Him, knowing good from evil. That is, He knows you won't need Him anymore. You will be autonomous, you will have it for yourself. This is really important for us to reckon with because this takes this out of fairy tale land and makes it very, very real because it's the same temptation that we're all tempted with every day. Do we trust God or do we seek autonomy? Do we want to be the captains of our own destiny? I want to be able to be the determiner of what's right and wrong. I will listen to myself or I will listen to God, even though at times I don't understand, even if at times it confounds me. I will trust him. God, who has put me in a garden of yes with a tree of no, said no. Do I listen to him? Do I believe that that will provide life? He told me the day I eat, I will surely die. Do I believe that this thing, which looks good to me, it's good to my eye, it looks good for food, it looks like it will make one wise, do I believe it will kill me? Do I trust God? Or do I trust Satan? Satan? how stupid do you have to be to trust satan yet every time we sin in some degree we do the exact same thing god says that we just read the law we just read the law and all these things we shouldn't do and we know that sin kills us yet we're faced with temptation and we're like, you know what? I think this will give me some satisfaction. I think this will give me pleasure. I think this will give me joy. Whatever it is. And we grab after it. We listen to the lie. Rather than listening to the word of God, we says, no, actually that will kill you. That will destroy your soul. That will be like drinking battery acid. And you're like, no, no, I'm, I'm going to go with this. this is going to bring me joy. That's what we do every time we sin. Every time we sin, we are essentially making that same stupid choice to be autonomous, not to trust God. Not to think that his way is the way of life, but actually, this is the way of life. I know better. It looks like it will make me wise. It looks like it will bring me joy. This is the problem with mankind. In Adam, all do this. Adam's not the bad guy. We're the bad guy. In Adam, all sin. We did it in as much as we are of Adam. Now again, this looks benign it looks like a stupid mistake and yet i was driving home with kevin yesterday and we were just kevin Sherrett, you know we were just thinking through the horrors of this cursed age you know some troubling stuff and even as we thought about here today some of it and i mean it's you know it has caused people to give up the faith it's caused people to walk away and be like no i can't believe in a god who I can't believe in the God who lets this kind of stuff happen. I just can't. There's some horrible stuff <laughs> in this world. And we're just reckoning with that. And you might say, you know, to the atheist's eye, it looks like an, quite an overreaction by God. You know, that, okay, you, the, the narrative of the Bible is one stupid act, and, okay, we're plunged into the horrors of this cursed age in which we live, which we enjoy a lot of, no doubt, but look around, look around filled with horrors and the sin of Adam kind of looks benign but but that's where you've got to think biblically because it, it not only does the Old Testament gradually turn on the lights to the glory of Jesus but it also if you will and another the metaphor crashes now so ignore it but but in some sense the darkness grows darker too like we actually learn through the Bible what the sin of Adam really looks like. I've made this point to you before about how, remember, Israel is like a swab of a culture on the back of the throat of humanity, right? What does Adam's sin really look like? Well, God takes a swab of humanity in Israel and puts it in the little jar, the little petri dish, and then we let it grow. And, and the Old Testament, in some sense, lets us see the culture of Adam's sin grow. It looks so benign. It's just picking of a fruit, but what we learn in the Old Testament, oh no. The, the very next story is going to be Cain killing his brother. Looks a lot worse than just fruit off a tree. But now we're getting to see what that decision really was, right? And then the whole story of Israel. But, but where I'm going with this is it gets finally to Golgotha where the light is the brightest. We see the treasure. Oh, here's the victory. And yet at the same time, ironically, we see the darkness in its darkest moment. We see what Adam's sin was when, it grows to the, when the culture grows to its full ugliness. It, that's the same thing. It's just that was really immature. It was an immature act of taking the fruit. But here's what it was. Theodicide. The murder of God. Right? The, the, the chance to get your hands on him and kill him so that we can have it our way. Not your will, but my will be done. That's what it is. I mean that and I don't we can, it's very very difficult for us to reckon with the cosmic implications of that of what a world in which the creature tries to kill the creator looks like. And it's horrible. It's much more horrible even than we get to see in this world where God by his common grace keeps it from being as bad as it could otherwise be. It's bad. We have to reckon with that. We have to reckon with that as we look at the problem here. This is bad. And so Adam grasps after the fruit. Immediately, everything falls apart. In that one moment, he grabs for the fruit with Eve, and everything falls apart. They know they're naked, which, re- which symbolizes the fact that now the, the unity that Adam and Eve had, now, now there's brokenness and alienation there between them. They cover themselves up with fig leaves. Their shame. They don't feel comfortable with each other anymore then God, with whom they've had such a delightful relationship, comes into the garden and they hide from him. Sin has destroyed that, right? And, and now they're turning on each other. Well, it's her. Well, it's the, it's the serpent that you put in the garden. You know, there's blame shifting. There's blaming God. It's ugly. It's ugly. Immediately, it's ugly. We've got real darkness. We've got real darkness that has set in. So again, how can we do justice to this? That point needs three sermons. So I only encourage you, discuss in Sunday school if you'd like, but I encourage you to think, mull that over, chew over what goes down when Adam and Eve sees the fruit. But of course that darkness and that ugliness then brings us to the promise, which is our text. Um, And that is Genesis 3.15. I say a verse you should all know because it is, it is the gospel. It's the first let there be light. In the darkness of sin and rebellion, it has all fallen apart, and God had said the day you eat, you will surely die. He didn't say the day you eat, you will immediately die. He said the day you eat, death is a certainty. And indeed, that word is true. They're going to die. He prolongs it, but it's coming, right? As Bob Dylan says a slow train coming. It is indeed, and it's coming. They will surely die uh, because of this. But death, now even the darkness of death, gets a ray of light burst into it by this amazing promise because God now lines them up, the serpent, the woman, and the man, and he proclaims curses on them. And we know the curses to Adam and Eve, we won't deal with them now. But, but he, it's interesting, he begins with the curse of the serpent. He doesn't deal with Adam and Eve and then say, oh yeah, and the serpent too. He begins with the serpent so that even the cursing of Adam and Eve gets heard with the promise of the curse of the serpent ringing in their ears. They get to hear God curse the serpent. and in the cur- It's not just, oh, oh, he's cursed. It's in the curse of the serpent that they actually hear embedded a promise to them. And the curse to the serpent is this, after saying you're going to lose your legs, I assume, we went from dragons to snakes at this point, And hence the fairy tales with the dragons. But he says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman. There was friendship between God and man. And we can therefore assume enmity between the woman and the serpent. But in the temptation of Eve and Adam... Adam and Eve changed loyalties, right? They they became the friend of the serpent. They chose to listen to the serpent and thus became the enemy of God. God became their enemy, the one who was holding them back. And they viewed God as enemy and serpent as friend and so they ally with the serpent and become the enemy of God. And now everything's upside down and we got a terrible nightmare. But the promise is, I'm going to set it right. I'm going, God immediately comes and says, I'm going to undo. I am going to restore enmities. I'm going to put the enmities back where they belong. I'm going to put enmity, Satan, between you and the woman. Which means, implicitly, I'm going to restore the friendships where they belong. I'm going to restore friendship between me and the woman. I'm going to bring her back. I'm going to win her back. That's the story of the Bible looking forward to the prince who comes and saves the bride and again the fairy tales work here they work they are so much the bible story it's like humanity longs for this story and it is the story of the bible gonna send the prince who's gonna bring the bride the woman who's under this curse he's gonna break the curse and he's gonna win her back by slaying the dragon I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her seed and your seed. Here is the picture of all church history and the history of the Bible. There is not only enmity between the woman and the serpent, but between their seeds, their offspring. All of humanity will be divided now into two offspring. The offspring of the woman, ultimately through Jesus Christ, and the offspring of the serpent. Right In the book of Revelation that we talked about, same thing, divided very dramatically between two, the bride and the whore. The harlot, the new Jerusalem, and Babylon. Those who follow the lamb and those who have the mark of the beast, right? There are these two offspring. And the enmity of the the beast and the lamb manifests itself out in the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the dragon. Right? It's manifested. The world will hate you, Jesus said. They will hate you. They will persecute you. They will seek to kill you. There's going to be that kind of enmity there. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her seed and your seed. And now he makes the seed personal. Right, A, single, a point of singularity. He, that is the seed of the woman, will bruise your head. He's going to crush your head. And you are going to bruise his heel. There's going to be this combat that's going to happen. That this enmity is going to boil down to a point or boil up to a point of climax. And at that at that time, this one, this singular seed. Seeds a seed is a a plural and a singular word. Interesting. It goes back and forth actually in the, in the Old Testament. it's Wonderful because it is both. Because Jesus is both. Right. He's he's a he's a man, but he's also the representative of the seed. Right. It, he is the seed of the woman, and yet. He's the representative figure. All the seed is represented in him. And this seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. And it's going to cost. It's going to come at a cost because he's going to get bitten on the heel. And it's going to hurt like hell. But it will not be ultimate. It will not be ultimate. You recover from a bitten, bruised heel. But you do not recover from a crushed head. And this is the first ray of light into the darkness, a, a world that got so dark for Adam and Eve. I mean, they just must be shivering. And think about it. you, I, I don't even think we can contemplate what the world. you ever make a bad decision? and then realize, "Oh no. Well, how stupid was. It? And now you're on the other side of that bad decision, and you're just crying out to yourself like you idiot. You know How badly I wish I could go back to that moment, and now your whole world has changed, and now you got to reckon with this situation. How do I get out of this situation, and how do I make it right, and what are going to be the consequences? Well, th- we deal with that on a little scale. I don't care how big that moment was for you. It's on a little scale compared to this. Think about how Adam's sunny world went black. And into that blackness comes this ray of light. And Adam must be thinking, I have no idea what that means, and I have no idea how you're going to do it. All I know is it's a promise. I'm going to do it. And the rest of the New Testament is the outworking of this now. Until we get to Jesus Christ, the true dragon killer, the one who comes and crushes the head of the dragon. <clears throat> it's Jesus who comes, and, and again, our New Testament text today gave us a little point of connection between Adam and Jesus because just as Adam was tempted in the garden and caves, Jesus is tempted by the serpent. He comes as the new Adam. He comes as the one who's going to do it right. But notice the differences in these texts. Adam is tempted in a garden of yes with a tree of no. Jesus is tempted in a wilderness of no with a call. The one yes he has is a brutal yes. The thing he's called to do is to go to the cross. But he's in, he's in a wilderness. Eh? Even the, just the, the setting of it just exposes to us the reality of what Jesus, our second Adam, is doing. He's not redoing what Adam's doing. He's undoing what Adam's doing. And so therefore, he comes into the wilderness of Adam's sin. He comes into the wilderness of the, the reality of Adam's sin and there obeys. Three times tempted by Satan. But each time refuses to grab for the fruit that's presented to him. Change the bread to stone, or stones to bread. Grab it. Get yourself out of this suffering. Why are you going down this road? But he refuses. Seek for assurance right now. Throw yourself off. See if they'll catch you. I'll give you all the kingdoms. You can have them right now. There's the fruit being offered to him. I'll give you what you want. What you want. And what you're ultimately going to get is the nations. I'll tell you what. Just like I think Adam was ultimately going to get within himself the knowledge of good and evil. But it was going to take time. You're going to have to wait. You're going to have to trust on the Lord. You're going to have to mature as a follower of God. And what Satan offers him is a shortcut. Get it now. And Satan offers Jesus a shortcut. I'll give it to you right now. What you're ultimately after, I'll give it to you. Just bow. But Jesus will not bow. Jesus will not and it's interesting, too, that we find Jesus at the climax of his ministry, also in a garden, just like Adam was in a garden, and at the center of the problem is a tree. Except it's not a fruitful, beautiful tree that would woo you. It's a horrid, wretched cross of a tree that would you know, propel you away. But Jesus, in this case, needs to go to it needs to eat from it, needs to drink from it, needs to drink the cup that is laid before him. And he prays, Lord, if there's any other way, let it not have to happen. But if not, then not my will, but your will. Exact opposite of what Adam does. But in the sinful, in the the realm of sin that Adam creates, Jesus comes and there proves his worthiness and his obedience. And in doing such, enters into the deepest darkness that the world has ever known and there brings light and there crushes the head of Satan defangs Satan, takes away the victory that Satan had achieved, if you will the short-lived victory that took place here in Genesis chapter 3 he redeems his bride, slays the dragon breaks through the back of the grave and brings his bride into everlasting life all that promise is contained in these words, but they're, they're hard to see. You have to contemplate. I would encourage you, again, this is three sermons we're preaching in one point. So you've got to take it and go and chew on it. But may God use this sermon to even begin to open your eyes to think through the beauty of one verse and in, tucked into Genesis chapter three, this story about Jesus, because it is the rest of the Bible right here. Which brings us to the last point, the pledge because Adam and Eve are given a gift by God not only are they given this promise but they're given a gift there they are you know the story clothe themselves with these fig leaves covering up their own shame which now seems so insufficient they hide in the bushes which seems so ridiculous now that the almighty infinite you know omniscient God is looking for them but before the Lord cast them out of the garden and he will place the angel with the flaming sword by the tree of life there's no getting back in here it's a dramatic and, and, uh, and frightening act because they're cast out now of the garden, that inner sanctuary of God's presence where they abided with him, if you will, in the temple or the tabernacle of his presence. And now they're cast out. And they're out in the wilderness now. They're on their own. And in between them and God now stands an angel with a flaming sword which basically says, you're not welcome back in here. You talk about darkness you're cast out and between you and your God between you and the fountain of living water between you and your father is an angel with a flaming sword that says if you dare come through here you will be slain And again, think through the rest of the Bible from the mountain where God dwelt at the giving of the Ten Commandments and he tells his people, if you so much as touch this mountain, you will die. Or the very temple itself or the tabernacle where there's a veil with cherubim sewn into it. And if you dare go in there without being a priest or if you dare go into the Holy of Holies without being the high priest on that one particular day, you will be slain for the presence of God is off limits to sinners. That's a hard reality that we have to come to grips with. Right here in Genesis 3, we are living east of Eden. We are kicked out of the garden. We're kicked out of his presence. And a flaming sword is placed between us and God. You may not enter. Well, that's depressing. That's depressing. But they just received this amazing promise that all will be made right. And they are given this gift by God, this pledge, if you will, for them as they go because we get this bizarre little text that we might be prone to read right over if we weren't paying attention that God sewed skins together and gave them to Adam and Eve as they left. And it's not just God giving a sweet little departing gift like, you know what, guys, you could do better with your wardrobe. Let me help you out here. And he and he gives them some animal skins. There's much more going on there. We know because we know in the rest of the scriptures the language of clothing and covering and the fact that it wasn't just better plants that he used, but he killed an animal to make these skins. It's the first signs that we get of what this is going to look like for Adam and Eve as the Lord kills an animal. Could it have been a lamb? I would not be surprised if it were a lamb, but we're not told. But God kills an animal and takes the skins and by his own hands and by his own gift He covers their nakedness and sends them out. But what's he saying in this gift? What is the pledge? Not just, I will cover your shame that you can't cover. You tried to cover it. We know you can't. I will cover it. Yes, that is there. I think that is something that the Lord is saying in the giving of this gift. But there's something much deeper going on here too. What did it take to make those skins? But a sword. An animal was slain so that they could wear the skins. And I think what the Lord is pledging to them here is the very image of how they will get access back into his presence. How do you get through the flaming sword to get back to God? Somebody's going to have to die. Someone's going to have to die. You don't just waltz back in. And from all the images we will see here to the rest of the scriptures, until we get to the cross, this image is being played out. Think about Passover itself. We'll get there eventually. But isn't Passover the same thing? Where the lamb is slain and the blood covers them. So when the angel of death comes with his sword, he comes here, every firstborn's gonna die. But when he gets to your house, if you're covered in those skins, if you're covered in that blood, the angel of death will pass over you. And in the very beginning, we get this beautiful image of the Lord saying, I'm kicking you out, but I'm bringing you back. There's going to be a way back through this flaming sword so long as you're clothed properly, so long you are in the proper clothing. And we know the scriptures tell us to clothe yourselves. Um, uh, Paul says in Romans chapter 13, the verse that converted the great Saint Augustine, clothe yourself in the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Clothe yourself in Christ He is the lamb slain for the sins of the world. And when we hide ourselves in him, we pass safely through the judgment for he bears the sword for us so that we can pass safely through. And that pledge was given to them as they left. Well, again, multiple, multiple sermons here, but plenty for us to chew on as we think about Christ in the Old Testament. Why Paul can say, I'm on trial for the hope of Israel because, guys, it's been our hope since Genesis 3.15. We've been hoping in this a long time that the day was going to come where the Lamb of God would be slain for us so that we, hidden in Him, would have access back into the presence of God, where Satan's head would be crushed and we would be delivered. This is the hope of Israel. This is our hope. And it's the first ray of light into the darkness, a light that will grow through the entire Old Testament until we finally get to the cross. And when we see Christ upon that cross, what we are to see is the flaming sword of God's judgment coming down upon him so that animal skins might be prepared for us so that we could enter back into his presence. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the richness of your word. We thank you that you are a God who says, let there be light. We thank you that you are a God who does not let darkness abide, but who is determined to overthrow it and cast it out with your light. We thank you that you are the one who comes to crush the head of the serpent and to deliver your bride from the dragon and from the curse, the mess that we got ourselves into. And Father, we know it came at a cost, for you gave your only begotten Son over to death. You poured out your wrath upon your son. You gave him the cup of your wrath to drink. You brought the flaming sword of your judgment down upon him so that we, we the creature, we the rebel, we the dust of the earth, might be spared and exalted and redeemed. Father, we are humbled by that. And we thank you for the light of your gospel. And we give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen.